Let's take our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And beginning in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which men may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us, and thank you that you've not only given us your word, but you've promised to illuminate our minds. We praise you for your spirit. We praise you that he is a willing teacher, and we ask that he would unlock truths to us that we may not have known, or that we may be affirmed again of just the sufficiency of your grace and of your power. And we just thank you that you're a patient God, that you're a good God, that you're our God, and that... Uh, We can gather tonight knowing that when we read your book, that we hear from you. And so thank you for being uh, so kind and so, so loving to us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Yeah, I was thinking um, it was my my opportunity to bring the message on Sunday night. And um, what would be appropriate and what would be, you know, to know the heart of where some of you are and where, if you're not there, where you will be, and as well as some of my own uh, journeys. And Joy and I were talking recently just about the last uh, year, two months has been uh, quite a ride, so to speak. And um, when, when you look at the Christian life and you look at your, your own walk with the Lord, and every one of you would nod your head, yes, is it there are certain times that you want God to do something, and you've asked Him to do something, and you've persistently asked Him to do something, and uh, He has remained, you know, noticeably silent. Or, if not silent, He has told you no. And and so, how do you handle no? Um, I know that uh, raising kids, you know how that goes well, uh, when you tell them no, and it's and it's it's like that even as adults. I don't think I've ever quit becoming a kid because we can throw spiritual tantrums when God says no. 
And so in this, this passage, you know it's a familiar passage. There's a danger of familiar passages. Is it uh, you already know what you know. Um, and so as we go through this tonight, uh, we will set the, the, the context. We know that it is about the Apostle Paul. And as you read this and, and over and over, uh, what really strikes uh, this about Paul is, is humility was something that he learned and it was something that he embraced. Uh, he, he welcomed this, uh, even at great pain to his own life. It's all through here as you see his humility. I didn't say that he arrived there in an easy journey. Uh, it was not so, and it isn't easy to stay in that place. Um, but we find here that this is the classic example of the thorn in the flesh of the Apostle Paul. Um, Many sermons have been preached on the thorn in the flesh. I'm not sure all of them have been uh, um, exegetical correct, exegetically correct. But nevertheless, everybody uh, has probably heard multiple sermons about the thorn in the flesh. And that the good that came out of this with the Apostle Paul concerning his pride. Uh, in some measure, uh, it may be safe to say that all of us uh, may have a thorn in the flesh. Uh, uh, there may be those certain areas that you just are constantly hounded uh, in your life. It may be, uh, as a Puritan would say, a bosom sin. That you just, just got to constantly uh, keep putting down. Um, you know, Hebrews 12, you know, the, the sin just so easily weighs us down. It may be that. There may be just some other things in your life. It could be a physical thing it, that just that God has not taken from you, that you have that. And so I, I want to kind of address that tonight. Now, when you look at the Apostle Paul uh, in this vision that he has, this isn't the first one uh, by any means. If you look at in the book of Acts, there's uh, six visions uh, apart from this one, uh, as well as him receiving the gospel by way of revelation. And so in this one, though, he is so reluctant to talk about it, and, and, and rightly so. Can you imagine uh, sitting around uh, uh, an ABF class, and your, your, your teacher is teaching and facilitating, and you go around the room, and people are sharing, uh, well, what's the Lord been teaching you through this, or what's this? And then it comes to the Apostle Paul, and he says, well, I was in heaven last week, and, uh, and Jesus uh, told me this and this, and, you know, I, I don't want to follow that. I mean, who would? And so Paul is very, very guarded in, in regards to this because he knows, though it's true that his trip was true, he's very guarded because he doesn't want people to think more highly of him than, he should, than they should. He doesn't want him to be elevated above. He doesn't want to, uh, because even in Paul's state, he knows that people fail people. Uh, and that there will always be failure of people failing people. That's just the way it is. You look around the world, you're going to meet with much uh, discouragement. You look at other people, you're going to meet with disappointment. If you look to yourself, you're going to be depressed. So there's never any place to look except unto Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, in his very vision, he uh, doesn't want to draw attention to himself for the sake of what it may do to harm another brother or sister. And that indeed is a mark of humility. Uh, now, what he would say, though, is that he did have uh, an experience. Uh, he doesn't focus on the experience. He says that uh, he, he had this, 
And in order to keep him from being so elevated above uh, that experience and perhaps even fostering a spiritual pride uh, that would cause him to condescend to look down upon other Christians perhaps who didn't have what he had, is that he was given what is a thorn in the flesh. And it says here, uh, a messenger, in verse 7, a messenger of Satan or a messenger, the word angelos is just that, an angelos of Satan. Now, what was this? Uh, it is absolutely fruitless to try to figure out what this flesh, this thorn in the flesh was, though I'm going to give you uh, some options, uh, and just for the sake of, uh, of, of giving you some options. Um, but the, um, the speculation is, is, is wide, wide. Some say that because it was an angelos, there was a demon that was directly assigned to the Apostle Paul to harass him. Uh, to harass means to buffet. It means to hurt or even to strike with a fist. There's that type of pressure that is up on the Apostle Paul. So now imagine here. I mean, he's not lacking the joy of the Lord, but he's got this, this whatever up on him and that it is harassing him. It is buffeting him. It is hurting him. It is something that is causing him extreme discomfort. Uh, some have said that this could have been uh, uh, epilepsy, it could have been hysteria, uh, depression, eye problems, malaria, leprosy, rheumatism, speech impediment, temptation, personal enemies, or punishment by a demon. And I'm sure there's other people out there that have said other things as well. Uh, so regardless of what it may be, Simon Kittismaker said, whether Paul's affliction appeared to be external or internal, the outcome remains the same. And so that's important for us to remember, is that this was given to him, this angelos, this messenger of Satan was giving, given to him, as painful as it was, to attack the worst form of ailment that can ever plague a human being, and that is pride. Pride is the worst disease that we could ever, ever have. It is the mother of all sin. Uh, it is um, uh, what produces all kinds of problems. All relational tensions can be boiled down to pride. And so in order for Paul uh, not to be conceited or lifted up with pride, he is giving this very uh, thorn in the flesh. And so I don't want to focus on the thorn on the flesh, or even uh, we are going to talk about, you know, why was it given, pride, but there's some other things that we'll see here. I want to focus more on what is our responses when God says no. What is our responses when we may be asking even for good things? We may be asking for, you know, for, for God honoring things, and yet uh, God says no. How do we respond to that? And how we respond to the no's of God determines a lot about, one, the depth of our relationship with him. Secondly, how much we do truly know about him. And thirdly, where we are in regards to eternal perspective versus temporal perspective. And so, but first I want us to look about in verse, uh, verse 8. I want us to just, a couple things about his, his plea or his prayer. It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. Now, you, we can take the, the three and we can say, okay, he asked for it three times and then he stopped. You know, that isn't Calvin's position on this. Calvin says it denotes frequent repetition. It isn't just three times and he's done. 
Now, there's some scholars who want to stretch this and say that, well, Paul asked three times for it to be removed. It parallels or it echoes Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, asking three times to have uh, you know, the, the cup removed from him. Okay, that is true that it did uh, happen three times, so the Apostle Paul three times. I, I think it's, it's, it, it, it is likely more of what Calvin's saying is that there was a persistence about the Apostle Paul. Uh, I don't believe for a second he asked three times and he just quit. I believe he had many nights of sleeplessness begging God to remove this. And I wonder if he didn't say, Lord, you know, I can be much more effective for you if you remove this. I can achieve so much more uh, by way of your people and the message of your son if you just take this away from me. And if it's, if it's a speech impediment, how much more would you say that? I mean, uh, if you're the Apostle Paul. And, and so I don't believe that he just was feeling a little bit of inconvenience. And then all of a sudden, uh, he asked three times. Uh, he didn't get an answer. So he just moved on. I, I don't believe that for a second. I think that he was really agonizing. And in that itself is a powerful lesson for us. It, because Jesus would teach us in the parable of the persistent widow about persistent prayer. In Luke 18, 1 through 8, uh, he would talk about, and you know the widow, she goes to the unjust ruler and she's hounding him, hounding him, and, and the guy gets worn down and finally gives up, uh, gives what she wants, and Jesus likens that to the elect who cry out to, to God day and night, and he says, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice speedily, nevertheless, will he find faith on earth, and this is a very profound teaching of the Lord, is that the, one of the marks of a faithful person is persistent prayer. It is the person who commits to a life of prayer. When Paul was converted, what was the very first testimony that was given of the Apostle Paul? It says, behold, he prays. And so Paul was known right out of the gate as a man of prayer. And so a prayerless Christian is a contradiction. And so we do have this persistence in prayer that marks the believer. But there is a time, as in the Apostle Paul, where enough was enough that you don't ask anymore. Now, how do you arrive to that point? I don't know. He did. I know that in, in, in some ways, uh, and you forgive me for the personal illustration here, you know, I'm still suffering the, the, uh, uh, the, the effects of the stroke uh, from, my, from my nerve damage. I wake up every morning and wonder if today's the day. Is it, is it going to oh, be over today? And I'm yet to have that day. And so within five minutes of waking up, no, it's not. And so I keep asking uh, is, is there a point where I don't ask anymore and I just submit to the sovereignty of God and let that unfold? Maybe, and, and maybe I'm there. But at any rate, the Apostle Paul had arrived to this point. But what, the point I want to get at, and here's a lesson for him in verse 8, is that pleading prayer is a mark of a believer. Pleading prayer is a mark of the believer. And so if you're going through a period of darkness or you're going through a period of difficulty or you're going through a period of uncertainty and you're going through a period of decision making or whatever it may be is keep persevering in that. Keep persevering in that. And John Newton says, be keenly aware of the moving of providence and circumstances in the answers to your prayer. And that is so true. And so keep pleading, but there may be a point where you are settled that, okay, enough. 
I don't need to keep asking about this and just surrender yourself to that. So then we have Paul in the persistence of his prayer. I want you to note also in verse 8, look where his prayer is going. It's not vague. He says, I pleaded with the Lord. The Lord. There's another place that that appears in Psalm 23. How does Psalm 23 start? The Lord is my shepherd. You know what happens often? Um, there's a new book out there by David Gibson. And, and if you haven't read any of David Gibson's stuff, I strongly encourage you to do so. He, he, he wrote this wonderful uh, exposition on Psalm 23. And I know there's a lot of books on Psalm 23. You know, but this is really, really good. And, uh, and he was saying that we have a tendency to jump into Psalm 23 and we'll go into all the good things that the Lord does. Uh, he will lead me. Uh, he will give rest to my soul. Uh, all those various wonderful things. He says, you know where we need to stop? In the very beginning where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And he would go on and he would say, isn't that an amazing thing that the creator would become the shepherd of a wayward people and make them his sheep? And he says, focus on the Lord as a personal shepherd long before you get all the benefits of that. And the same thing with here. What does the apostle do? He, his plea is, is directional. It is extremely focused. He knows there's only one place he can go uh, to get this thorn of, the, thorn of his flesh removed. He knows there's no other place to go. It is to the Lord. And so on, on a side note to teach us about prayer, number one, be persistent be persistent until, you know, there may be a time where uh, enough is enough. Uh, but also understand the relational component of who you're praying to. Uh, that thorn in the flesh, uh, it didn't just happen to Paul. It was sent to Paul. And the thorn in the flesh and your circumstances that you're in, uh, it didn't just happen to you. It wasn't just allowed to happen to you. It was given to you. And so understand that the Lord of your circumstances is the Lord in your circumstances. And that he'll be there with you as you unfold uh, the many circumstances uh, in, in your life that he has given you. Now, let's, let's move on then and, and look at this in, in verse 9. Um, God's reasons. Why does God say no? Why does God say no? Well, there's two things that Paul would tell us in verse 9. But he said to me, no... My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So we have two, two properties, if we may use the word there, uh, that, that is being drawn, that the Lord is drawing attention to himself in Paul's life. One, his grace. Secondly, his power. We see the possessive of this. My grace, my power. No, Paul, you're not going to be able to get rid of this by yourself. It's not your self-sufficiency. It's not your resolve. It's not your discipline as a rabbi. None of that stuff is going to remove this. There's nothing you can do to take this away. Is that my grace and my power could be used in your life right now to remove that, but I have chosen not to. I have chosen not to exercise what you need to get this off of you. Instead, I've chosen to exercise those to you so that you would learn the lessons you need to learn by me remaining that, leaving that within you. And so that's what we have to understand too, is his grace and power are certainly there for our benefit and certainly there to read many blessings upon us. But let's also understand that the grace and power are also teaching properties of God. They're not just empowerments. They're also 
teaching properties. Titus would tell us, but the grace of God that is a peer bringing all salvation, training us or teaching us to deny ungodliness and all those. So we had this understanding that grace is far more than just God bestowing things upon us. Grace is far more than just God, you know, coming to my rescue in time of need. And his power isn't just for me to get through a, a tough day. His power is also his power for teaching. And so before we look at these, uh, um, for our responses when God says no, I want us to look first at uh, the first reason why God says no. And we find that in verse 9, my grace is sufficient. Or God will use, or I should say, God will say no so that he will display the all-sufficiency of grace in your life. He says no so that he will display all-sufficiency of his grace in your life. We must understand that we exist to manifest the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the church, in the family, in the world. Our created purpose and recreated purpose in Jesus Christ is to be glory reflectors. Is to, sh- is to shine forth the person of Jesus Christ in all spheres of influence. And it's, it's when we are able to, you know, stand over a grave and be able to sing it is well with my soul and half the crowd around there are unbelievers, it causes them to say, what is this? What is this? And so we need to understand then that God says no, not because uh, he wants to he, he takes great pleasure in us suffering, not at all, is that God understands that we are to be the reflectors of the glory of His Son on the display of His all-sufficient grace, and the only way many times that that can happen is by Him saying no to what we want Him to do in our lives. And when He says no, and something is extremely painful, where do you go? You go to the very person who told you no. Because you know the only way, the only way that you can endure the no is by the sufficiency of his grace. And so his, his no is not a denial of your comfort per se. Because I would argue that Paul, because when we see that he boasts in his sufferings, that he boasts in the no, that I would argue just like Stephen, Stephen did not ask to be delivered from the stoning. You know, but, but Stephen got something that, 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 we, that we don't see and something that is, that is so amazing is that Stephen got a glimpse of the Lord Jesus and he got to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ on the right hand of the, of the Father. And so what happens when God says no to any type of deliverance or says no to a specific prayer request, do you know what you get instead? You don't get deliverance, you get him. You get close to him. And in the midst of that, you would not trade one second of the suffering for what you get by getting close to him. Now, let me give you three areas uh, that kind of defines life that we need this sufficient grace. And all this applies to the Apostle Paul. And so the first one is just this. Is that in order for us to understand knows, is we must understand life. And that, and that God is not... God's first obligation, I even should say, his first purpose in his redeemed children is not their comfort in a crumbling world. 
His purpose in salvation is conformity into the image of His Son, the Lord Jesus. And that means that comfort is secondary. Creature comforts is secondary. And so here's what we have to understand. Three things about life. If we're going to um, accept the no and the sufficiency of His grace is, is that one, life is one of constant struggle. Life is one of constant struggle. That demands grace to endure. Is life is hard. Every one of you are going through something hard. Now there is degree of hard. I get that. But every one of you are experiencing hard. Why? Because that's life under the sun. And if we think it's going to be any otherwise, uh, then you're going to find out it gets harder. It is because God is going to show you that you are living in a constant struggle. Second Corinthians chapter 11, listen to this. Here was the Apostle Paul's life. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. And night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all this, there's the daily pressure of the anxiety of the churches. I was thinking when, uh, when Pastor Jonathan was going through the, the martyrdom of the disciples, you know, he could have kept right on going all through church history, and he could have went through all these guys. He could have went through the Coventers. He could have went through all these. You want, he, he went to Jim Elliott and his friends. And, and so we could go through, we could look even today, the 21st century, how many Christians around the world are dying for their faith. Now, more martyrs now in the last two, 200 years than the whole history of the church. You know, and so, and I, we were talking this afternoon, and I said, I looked at her, and I said, you know, I said, I'm not really quite sure I understand what it fully means to be all in. Don't fire me. I mean, I'm trying. I mean, <clears throat> but think about it. The Apostle Paul was all in. And all those things I just told you, you know what that reveals? The life of the Christian is one of constant struggle constant struggle and that demands that you hear the still small voice that says my grace is sufficient for you in all things and one thing is the as a wise wife would she looked at me and she says you know that we're not called to be martyred like them good thing huh but uh, but no it's true we're not we're not called to that life maybe someday maybe not but the point i want to get at on this is that we are supposed to be here to display the sufficiency of His grace. So God will tell us no, so that we'll realize that life is one of constant struggle, not meant to be on a bed of ease. It's not meant to be one of, of constant comfort. We do have those periods, and thank God for those reprieves, but they're far and few between. They're far and few between. The second thing is that life is one of constant trial. It's not only a constant struggle, but it's constant trial demanding the grace to endure. You know what? I, so much that we, we love the Apostle Paul. He told, and, and that was one thing about, you know, what we heard this morning, that, what, that has to be part of our evangelism. That has to be part of our sharing the gospel. 
is we have to be willing to tell people that there is a price to pay if you're going to hitch your, hitch your wagon to Jesus. You've got to understand, this is not for the faint of heart. He's not going to come into your life and make it easy. In fact, he's going to come into your life, and your life is going to get exponentially extremely difficult. So life is one of constant trial. And what did the Apostle Paul say to the believers in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? Here's the amazing thing about Paul. He goes back to the very place he got stoned. And he went back because he wanted to strengthen the souls of the disciples, encourage them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We need to remind each other more and more, not only the sufficiency of God's grace, but why we need the sufficiency of God's grace, because life is one of struggle and life is one of constant trial. And Jesus in the upper room discourse, when he had every right at that most pivotal time in his life to focus on himself, he focused on his disciples, and he says, in me you'll have peace, but in the world you're going to have trouble. We need to tell each other that. I need to be told, when I want to get woe is me, and I want to get into a self-pity party, I need, to, I need a brother, I need a sister to come alongside of me and say, you know it's supposed to be that way. You know, it is supposed to be that way. Third thing about the sufficiency of God's grace and how the no's help us to display His grace. Life is a constant struggle. Life is one of constant trial. But I want you to understand this, and this is so important. It it comes from the garden. Life is one of constant dependency on God's grace. Constant dependency. Are you keenly aware that you live every waking moment of your day under the umbrella of divine grace? Now, you don't, if you're not aware, I mean, when I talk about awareness, I'm not talking about a felt sense of God's grace. God's grace works 24-7 whether you feel it or not. And you may be thinking as you're at the end of your rope on one day and you can't go another day. Guess what? You're going to go through that day and you're going to wake up the next morning and you're going to look back and you're going to say there was the sufficiency of God's grace. And so we, see, we need to see that we were created originally before the fall. We were created to be dependent creatures in a dependent relationship with our God. That's, that's how it was supposed to be. And praise God, someday that's how it's going to be in its, in its, in its wildest imaginations. It's going to be wonderful in complete submission to God without the invader and the, and the old remnants of Adam pulling at me and drawing me away. All that's going to be gone. And we're going to be able to be recreated in Christ, glorified, to live the life of dependency on God like it was always supposed to be. So that's how you understand, you know, when he says no. What does he want to do? He wants to display his grace through us. Because everything that I mentioned, life is a struggle, life is a trial, life is one of dependence. Every one of those three things apply to every single human being in the world. Our neighbors beside us that don't know Jesus Christ, their life is a struggle. And our neighbors who, uh, who live beside us who don't, know, who don't know the Lord Jesus, their life is one of constant trial. And our neighbors who live beside us that don't know Christ, their life is to be one of constant dependency. The problem with all three of those is that they don't have any God to go to, is that their dependency is on themselves, and that their struggles are in the strength of self, and that their trials are trying to gut it out in the strength of themselves, and that is not working for them at all. 
And so what happens when we befriend our neighbors in redemptive relationships or our coworkers? What happens is they start seeing us. And they start seeing that, hey, you struggle too, but you don't seem to be getting down. You, you have trials, but you seem to, to rise above them. And you had this settled contentment. The life is crumbling. All the world is crumbling all around us. I mean, all look at our nation. And yet you seem to be able to say, I know, but why are you like that? Well, let me tell you about the God of all grace who comes to you in your struggles, who comes to you in your trials, and who comes to you offering a grace that causes you to be dependent upon the God of all grace who's able to help you in your struggles and in your trials. Well, there's another thing. Look at verse 9. There's the second thing here um, that God says no because he wants to show the sufficiency of his grace to us in, in all of life. But there's also another thing that Paul that is boasting about. God tells Paul no. Instead of whining and crying, he says, okay, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to be able to display your grace in my struggles, in my trial, in my dependency for others to see. But Paul would also say, but there's power. He says, God's power is made perfect in my struggles, in my trials. And so we see here that, that God wants to say no, or will say no to us to display not only the all-sufficiency of his grace, but the all-sufficiency of his power through us. He said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weaknesses. So what about the power of God in our lives? We saw we need his grace. What about his power? We have two, we have two objectives to live. Two objectives, two pursuits. One, we have the mission of the gospel in our homes, our church, our community. We have, we have the mission of the gospel. Secondly, we have the mission of conformity to the image of Christ. That sums up the Christian life. We're here on a mission to be conformed to Him who is the mission. And we can simplify that that is the pursuit of the Christian life. Well, what do we need for that to happen? We need power. We need power. Uh, if you try to do the mission of the gospel in the strength of yourself, uh, maybe if you're really disciplined, I'm going to give you a month. You're not going to last because it's discouraging. You don't always see the uh, fruit of your labor. It's lonely. Um, you look around and you seem like, well, nothing happening here. And so it's very easy to get discouraged. You need power to do the mission of the gospel. But you also need power of, of conformity to the image of Christ because you have so much inside of you still as a Christian that wants to resist conformity to Christ. Is that we have the passions of our flesh that are still there. They have been rendered, you know, powerless, so to speak, because of identifying in Christ and outside of Adam, but it's still there. It's like guerrilla warfare. The battle, the war is over, but this guerrilla warfare is still going on every day of our lives. Here's three things that we need on the display of God's power. Number one, we need His supporting power. We need His supporting power. 
The Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. How many of you, even you know, your moms, moms, you're raising kids, you're, you're educating your kids. Uh, Dad, you go to work, you're, you're working in the, in the marketplace. You know, you, you're, all of us have something. And there is something that pressures us. And there's sometimes that you wish you could wake up in the morning and just pull the covers over your head and just let life go by. You wish you could just let it go by and that, you know, just, hey, world, go on without me today. You know, that's what you wish you could say. Every one of you have those days. And you get halfway through your day and you look at, your, you look at the clock, you say, it's only noon. That's the reality that, uh, uh, and Paul says, we despaired of life itself. But he says, so that we would trust in God who raises from the dead. Why would the Apostle Paul confess his weaknesses and then say that we despaired of life itself so that we have the sentence of death? He said that is to rely on, on ourselves, not on ourselves, but on God. But he adds the phrase, who raises from the dead. Because the supporting power of the Christian life His power is made perfect in weakness. It is the power of Christ's resurrection. That is the power source of the Christian life. Every day we must appropriate the power of Christ's resurrection. You must be willing to tell yourself, I died with him, I rose with him to walk in newness of life. And that is a faith exercise that will energize you and give you the supporting power so that your neighbors will see that power in your life. The apostle would say that God told him, my power is made perfect in weakness. It's not only supporting power, but it's enabling power. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We will never do one single good, spiritual good for our church, for our families, for our community in the strength of ourselves. We must have enabling power. And it begins with understanding that we are simply treasures. We have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. In and of ourselves, we're not much. We're not much. And neither were those disciples. They weren't a whole lot. But God's power was on display in supporting them, enabling power, and we also have God's strengthening power. When you feel like throwing in the towel, and some days you do, God comes to you with Isaiah 40, 29. He has power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so that is what we see here then, we see some of the, 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 the reasons why God says no. He says no because He wants to display His grace through us and He wants to display His power through us. Now, let me quickly, in the next uh, 10 minutes, let's, um, let's, uh, let's look at uh, how do we respond? How do we respond when God says no? Well, let's look at the negative first. Not that any of you ever do these. Um, but here's the negative. When God says no to your request... And it's, it could be a gut-wrenching request, because Paul's was. Is it, here's, let me give you the negatives. There's four, and I'm going to group two of them together. Uh, first off, a, re, a negative response uh, to God's no that's displeasing to him is rebellion. Is rebellion. Uh, rebellion in a sense that we forget the very things I shared with you earlier. That life is a struggle, that life is a trial, and that life requires dependency. So we can rebel. When God says no, we can, we can have our spiritual temper tantrum and we can kick against the goads. 
That's one thing we can do. The second thing we can do when God says no is we can complain. We can complain. Uh, when um, I was reading uh, recently again uh, Jerry Bridges' book on respectable sins. And, um, you know, I, I wish he would have added a couple more on there. Because I'm convinced more and more as I deal with Christians and I deal with the guy I see in the mirror every day is that the, the three most respectable sins in the life of the Christian uh, could very well be complaining, discontent, and procrastination. Those are likely the three most dominant respectable sins in the life of a Christian. And I think it's important that we understand that complaining in particular, Paul would tell us to do all things without grumbling or disputing in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 16. That would be on the back end after he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. Always thought, why would he say fear and trembling? Because one, the fear is to work out your salvation in the fear of God. The trembling is to be keenly aware of your own frailties, of your own weaknesses, your own trembling. And so complaining is very serious uh, when God says no because complaining uh, basically says, uh, God, I'm not happy with your sovereignty. I'm not happy with you working out your will in my life. I'm all happy when you say yes. But you're telling me no and I'm not happy with that. So rebellion and complaining are two uh, negative responses uh, when God tells us no. Now Paul doesn't do any of these. And then I want to group two more and then uh, wind down with uh, just two areas or that, um, that are pleasing responses when God says no. Uh, and here's the last two of the negative ones. One, we can complain. Uh, we can rebel. Here's one. We can, contempt to, we, uh, we can attempt to control or attempt to change circumstances or people. That is when, when God tells us no about something we can say, well, I'm just going to take a detour around to my yes. And we can try to change environments. We can try to change circumstances. Or worse yet, we can try to change people. And here is the issue. We're in control of no one or nothing. And that's an important thing for us to remember. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Samuel Rutherford, he was a wonderful Scotsman. Uh, Rutherford, he suffered. He suffered so much. Um, you know, 17th century guy. This is what he said. Quote, the great master gardener in his wonderful providence has planted me in this part of his vineyard by his grace. And here I grow and abide till the great master of the vineyard thinks it fit to transplant me. End quote. Isn't that beautiful? The imagery of that is so beautiful. And he says that he went on to say, he says, his people must be content with what he carves out for them. And so, those are the negative responses we can do when God says no. Now let's take a, a quick look at how can we respond. Look at verse 9 again. Uh, how do we respond uh, to no's in a way that pleases the Lord? The first one is glad submission to his providence. A glad submission to God's painful providence. I won't read to you the definition of providence. You're well-versed in our confession. Um, we know that God in His most wise and holy providence, He ordains all things uh, for uh, His glory, their good. Paul would say, therefore, 
Therefore, in verse 9, in the, the latter part of it, therefore. He said, I asked for it to be taken away. He said, no. He said, because I want you to display my grace. And I want you to display my power. And Paul says, okay. Therefore, I will boast. I will boast. I will rejoice. I will rejoice all the more gladly. So Paul would not only not rebel, not complain, not try to change. He would say, I'm going to embrace this. And I'm going to embrace this. And I'm going to rejoice over this. Friends, that's otherworldly. That's not of us. There was a, a man. He, he pastored in the 18th century in Connecticut. Uh, in fact, in Hartford. Um, he was in, in 1770. His name was Edward Griffin. He was well known as one of the most uh, uh, profound preachers of New England. Uh, God used him mightily uh, in, in Connecticut. Uh, in fact, uh, they had a sweeping revival in his church. Uh, Ninety people were converted and joined him one day, one Sunday, one Lord's Day. And there were some other m- remarks about his ministry. He preached a sermon on 2 Corinthians 12, 10. When I am weak, then I am strong. He said this, to what a high and heroic frame had this holy man, Paul, arrived, that he could take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, persecution, and distresses for Christ's sake. It is as much as ordinary Christians can do to, quick, to, to sim, simply submit to these. But to take pleasure in them is a constituent part of a joy that is otherworldly. And that is so true. Is that Paul was willing to say, and here, here it is. Here's our proper response to this. When God says no, we gladly submit to his providence, knowing that he is wise, knowing that he is good, and knowing that he makes no mistakes, despite the pain. And then finally, look also verse 10. If we are going to please God when he says no... We must gladly submit, embrace, boast over painful providence. Secondly, embrace or willingly allow contentment in his providence. Not only do we submit to it, because you know you can submit and inside be rebellion. You can submit outwardly, but inward you're like, was it, was it the story about the little boy? He was told to go sit in a corner in a chair and, and he told his mom, you know, okay, I will. I'll go sit in the chair, and I'm obeying on the outside, but I'm not on the inside. We can do that too. And so Paul would balance. Not only would he boast in the outward weaknesses, boast in that, but he says, I have learned to be content. And contentment is a heart issue. Contentment is a heart issue. And we find that the Scripture would tell us, New Testament, four times uh, the word content appears. Where we read here, Philippians 4.11, I have learned whatever situation I am, I am to be content. 1 Timothy 6, uh, 6-8, but godliness with contentment is great gain. But if we have food and clothing with these, be content. That's it, just your needs. And Hebrews 13.5, be content with what you have. So summarize all that with this. You know, you know what contentment truly is? Contentment is not accepting what is happening. Contentment is accepting what is happening and taking pleasure or mental satisfaction in it. That's what the word means. And that means that we're content in all things, all circumstances, Philippians 4.11. That means we are content in what God has given to us, plenty or not, 1 Timothy 6, 6-8, and Hebrews 13.5. Spurgeon said this, and we'll close. 
Quote, you say, if I had a little more, I should be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you are not content with what you have, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. End quote. And so what does God want us to do when he says no? He wants us to respond in ways that pleases him. We do that by glad submission to what he's doing. And we also do so by embracing the contentment in the, in the providence. And let's remember that his no is so that his grace and his power will be on display to a watching world, both among us and in the world, so that they will know a God of all grace who has promised them in Jesus that there will be a contentment that will last forever and ever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your tremendous amount of love and, and even in you telling us no. May you help us to be content in the no. May you help us to embrace the no. Uh, may you also let us see that all of life is so that we will display the, the magnificence of your grace and of your power that the world would know that the Lord Jesus, who himself is full of grace and full of truth, is for them. And so, Father, thank you for the Lord's Day. May we remember the things we've learned today, the things that we have been exposed to, your truth, that we apply them to our lives, that we would live the crucified and risen with Christ's life this week and give us opportunities to speak of him. And we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.